Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. This is rather humorous. The D.C. Circus. Uh... Could all former presidents and vice presidents please check their garages to see if they have any classified documents? Uh, I'm really pulling for Dan Quayle to come up with something, huh? Who's your one that you want? The National Archives sending a letter to uh, (laughs) reps for former presidents and vice presidents uh, from the last six administrations covered by the Presidential Records Act, uh, which asks uh, if... um, uh, you could please review your residences and uh, private office spaces yeah. to see if you inadvertently, of course, because how else would it be, can uh, have presidential records that are required by law to turn over to the National Archives. The responsibility to comply with the PRA, Presidential Records Act, does not diminish after the end of administration, according to the letter. Therefore, we request you conduct an assessment of any materials held outside of the National Archives that relate to the administration for which you serve as a designated representative to determine whether bodies of materials previously assumed to be personal nature might inadvertently contain presidential or vice presidential records subject to the Presidential Records Act, whether classified or unclassified, and so on and so on and so forth. But the problem is, based on what we have, what we understand to be true, what has been reported about some of the documents with classified markings found at the Biden compound, you would have to include all United States senators, too, because some of the documents date back to his time as oh, United States right. senator, yeah, that's particularly right. senators on the perhaps on the Senate Intel Committee. 312-642-5600 is our number. You can always reach us on our text line, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. You know what we could use what? here, I think? We could use the artistic talents of Hunter Biden uh, to sort of provide a, a moment here of artistic commentary on this classified records imbroglio. Um, I, I just I, I have to get this in. Hunter Biden's art dealer, Georges Berger, <laughs> has claimed that Hunter. What? Oh, no. Will be one of the most consequential artists of the century. <laughs> The blow artist, the, Hunter Biden, and I'm not referring to his drug issue or whatever he's doing in his bedroom. He's a blow artist. I mean, he blows paint on canvas, right? We tried it here. Sean Thompson was in for you, and we all did the blow art thing. And I bet you did. I mean, it was a good show. It's a show to remember. Um, and I, Quinn won the contest, hands down. I think Three Suns Over a Coronas Virus Moon was the name of his painting. Yeah. Uh, we'll tweet it out later. But well, that's he's he has seen... a little bit of an advantage because right. he used to blow glass in Brazil, and um, <laughs> and glass won't stop calling. 
Ohio. Oh, hey. Uh, but I mean, that, that's not artistic George talent, please. Berger, yes, go on. Uh, to my point and to his point, okay. I'm just adopting this. Uh, I represent Hunter Biden because I feel that not only his art merits my representation, but because his personal narrative, which gives birth to his art. Oh. it He conceives. He was conceived in art. He births. <laughs> okay. It's very much needed in the world right now, and it is. So how about an artist's rendering of of um, this sort of abstraction of the handling of classified information? I, I just think comment from Hunter, and again, through the medium that will be most impactful, that would be his art, would be warranted in this. His is a story of perseverance. Oh, right. I mean, who, he's such Hunter's a mastermind. Hunter's story reflects what I believe is the beauty of humanity, judged not by the fall, oh no, but by having the strength to rise up, uh, oh. by having the character required to change and the courage to do it. Hunter Biden's art reflects all of that and more. His art gives us hope. It reminds us that tomorrow brings a new day, a new beginning, and, yes, a new possibility. I mean, I'm going to cry is, now. Uh, I mean, and when you think of Hunter Biden, tell me the words character and courage don't come to mind. Oh, yes. He's a man of sound character. So he's an artist and he's an energy czar. I mean, this man is brilliant. How does he have the time to do it all? If any of you are watching at home, um, I've got Quinn's blow art here. Yeah. Three Flowers Under the COVID Sun is the name. And if any oh. of you want to purchase it, you can call us and let us know. Yeah. Uh, Beautiful. It's right here, so you can see it on the camera. I mean, Hunter's blow art's going for uh, 75 grand a pop, oh. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. who's buying his art? A lot Somebody of Chinese who wants access to his dad, maybe? Yeah. Just He's insane. very big in the Chinese communist uh, oh, really? market. Yeah, what about very the Ukrainian big. market? How's he, how's he tapping into that one yet, too? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he's so brilliant. He belongs to no one. He belongs to everyone. Hunter Biden is in all of us. Oh, right. And has been in many of us, apparently, according to his laptop. Uh, all right. Ooh. So I wanted to get to something else, too, because uh, the classified documents that have been seized by the actual president or from the actual president. Well, seized. That implies no. an aggressive posture by the FBI. The uh, classified documents the FBI was willing to accept right. from the Biden I mean, administration. Democrats get searched. Republicans, their homes get raided. Okay, Dan, we got to know the difference here. And so, yeah. So um, Tom Cotton and uh, some Republicans on the Senate Intelligence Committee would like to see the documents that were seized from both former President Trump as well as those that were politely handed over by President Biden. And uh, the Director of National Intelligence is saying no. And so Tom Cotton is saying, okay, well, we're not going to take up any federal, any of Biden's federal judiciary nominees until we see those oh. documents. So it's getting a little chippy yeah. there inside the beltway. Here's the senator. Until... The administration stops stonewalling Congress. There will be pain as a consequence for them. Good. Good for him. Set some landmarks. I mean, set some rules, I should say. Excuse me. But I got to tell you, this, this, this story goes off on so many different tangents. This is an interesting one since Cotton invoked judicial nominees. There were some judicial nominees before the Senate Judiciary Committee recently, a handful of uh, district court 
federal district court nominees. And uh, Senator John Kennedy is one of the lead interrogators when it comes to judicial nominees. And this is important because, as we've discussed, uh, Biden is actually as successful as Trump was in populating the judiciary with his appointees and getting them confirmed. Uh, Biden has been even more successful. And maybe uh, some Republicans, even though they're in the minority there in the Senate, maybe they want to start pumping the brakes and raising the profile on the quality of some of these nominees. Uh, John Kennedy did so, I wouldn't say inadvertently, maybe he knew who he was dealing with. Listen to this exchange between Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana and um, a Biden judicial nominee named Charnel uh, Jelkengren from Washington State. Very telling. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations uh, to all of you. Um, judge on the far end, uh, tell, tell me what Article 5 of the Constitution does. Article 5 is not coming to mind at the moment. Okay. Hmm. How about Article 2? Oh, boy. Oh, no. Mine, honey. Neither is Article 2. Oh! Okay. Do you know what purposivism is? Oh, boy. That's a big stretch. Um, in my 12 years as an assistant attorney general huh? and my nine years serving as a judge, I was not faced with that precise question. Mm. Um, we are the highest trial court in Washington State, so I'm frequently faced with um, issues that I'm not familiar with, and I thoroughly review the law, our research, and apply the law to the facts presented to me. Well, you're going to be faced with it as a, if you're confirmed. I can assure you of that. Um, Article 5 uh, deals with amending the Constitution. Uh, okay, maybe maybe you don't recall Article 5 offhand. Article 2 relates to the executive branch, the organization of the executive branch. Uh, what? Uh, purposivism is, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, sounds like a very you know, complicated uh, legal uh, term or something. It just means in, uh, interpreting statute consistent with the objective rationale behind the law. That's all. And the fact that she said, well, I, 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 the highest trial court in Washington State, assistant attorney general, right. That's an indictment of Washington right. State's justice system. But it's also a reminder about the quality of a lot of these judges. Legal scholars, they're not. Uh, um, intellectuals. Intellectuals, they're not. I, just to, I mean, that exchange, which won't get nearly the play it deserves, is troubling at multiple levels, and it should be a reminder, as we need a, a reminder in Illinois with Cook County Circuit Court judges and the Illinois Supreme Court, but the quality of the minds on these courts, just because you put on a robe 
doesn't mean you know what you're talking about. Because you're, an, I was an assistant AG. I was an assistant U.S. attorney. I was this prosecutor. Nine years. Yeah. What have we seen in terms of performance? Now, some of people in those positions are indeed intellectuals and scholars and more than competent and thinkers, but a lot of them aren't. And frankly, that's what a confirmation process is supposed to flesh out. So for reasons that have nothing to do with classified documents, I'm happy to hear Tom Cotton using judicial nominees as the uh, leverage against the administration to see those documents. they should be hold, they should be slowing down those judicial nominees altogether for uh, reasons that ha- relate to their competency to be on the federal bench. Not that uh, Miss uh, Jell Kengren wouldn't have a lot of uh, similarly talented colleagues on the bench that uh, she would be joining. But I, I mean, that is wild, and it tells you a lot about the mentality of particularly the leftist lawyers in this country. The Constitution is something that's referenced, that's invoked when you go through a pro forma oath, but it's not something I know anything about or need to. And if somebody asks me what Article 2 is, well, then I'll just Google it. There's somebody who's put a lot of thought into constitutional law. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Chicago's very own Willie Wilson, candidate for mayor, was on with Tucker Carlson last night talking about, well, what else would you be talking about to a national audience with respect to Chicago other than... It's crime. Violence, right. And um, he uh, played in Tucker uh, Willie's clip from the debate, the ABC7 debate uh, a week ago Thursday, where he talked about uh, taking the handcuffs off police and having them chase down criminals like rabbits as needed, uh, contrasting himself from Lori Lightfoot and the defund, decarcerate crowd, which was what was mainly on stage during that debate, who oppose, you know, police chases, whether on foot or in cars, really oppose policing in general. Here's what Willie had to say. Well, here's what I meant. I lost a 20-year-old son. 
he was murdered by a gun. Uh, mm. These people need to be caught. Too many yes. restrictions on the police department. We need to take the handcuffs off the police officer and put them on the people who's actually doing it. And, and it, it needs to stop now. This particular mayor that we have right now just keep coming up with excuses, excuses. But people keep dying on the street. Nobody yes. doing anything about it. But excuses. So, no, when we become mayor of the city of Chicago, we're going to put a stop to this crime. We're going to take them back, our police officer, men and women, and get the job done. I'm tired of it. I don't want to see no other family go through what I've been through, the loss of a yes. son or lose a daughter or something of that nature. We're going to stop it. Uh, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Simple question, because these are the only two candidates that are really talking about uh, restoring policing to the city of Chicago. Who do you believe or who do you trust more on this issue, Vallis or Willie Wilson? There's only two candidates that are right. saying those things. So two of the nine. Vallis or Willie Wilson? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. And I think the folding in of the... Um, loss that uh, his family experienced by the way his son wasn't murdered by a gun he was murdered by somebody who used a gun but right. i'll give him a pass uh the um and he and those are included in ads he's running now too i mean um you know it's it's powerful obviously. i know I, and we've had him on countless times and he never mentioned that before you know i mean have you ever heard about it before besides the ad that yeah he waited think... a long time I think I th to tell his story. I think he actually did mention it when we spoke with him four years ago when he ran. Um, okay. He hasn't he hasn't talked about it a lot, uh, and for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. that's that's fair. We're not forcing him to or suggesting he should, but he's chosen to do so now. Uh, you know, to sort of present as somebody who knows what he's talking about, and not just because uh, he, uh, you know, is, is so ingrained in. The black church community and in other ways. So David he's using Brown it now. David Brown lost his son too. Yes, he right. David Brown. Gun violence. Well, but but he, that was a poor of a police shooting, and his son was a that's criminal. A a criminal and shot at police, and they yeah, fired back. Yeah, a little bit different. Awful. I mean, Paul it's still Vallis, terrible, yeah. but it's it's different, right? Uh, Paul Vallis lost his son to addiction. I, I mean, uh, understand. I mean, I'm not saying that the no. the. The, this is a competition to see who has suffered the most tragedy. I mean, it's all it's all uh, terrible, and it does inform their understanding of these issues in a very personal way. I definitely concede that point. But ultimately, it still comes down to the question of, you know, I mean, who do you think is more of a swashbuckler when it comes to the established order and the identity, the poisonous identitarian political culture in Chicago? Who's more likely to buck it? In in you know in furtherance of public safety, I I think Paul Vallis. I, I trust him more than Willie Wilson. Willie Wilson's a, a wonderful man, but Paul Vallis has been in the political pit before. I think he he knows how it works, and I think that he'll come in hitting the ground running. Whereas Willie Wilson's got to learn everything. I mean, he's a newbie, but I don't know. We might need that. People might like that. Hmm. Somebody who's not in the swamp, so to speak. Who do you trust more, Dan? I'll reserve my answer for a moment. 
Joe in his car. You're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Dan and Amy. God bless. I would uh, vote for Willie Wilson. Why? Uh, I know. Uh, well, because I've been following him for quite some time. I used to listen to another morning radio station back in the day, and he was on several times. He stuck to his guns uh, for at least the past six, seven years that I've heard him speak. Um, the only thing that I did disagree with him on is uh, when he did talk about reparations uh, yeah. for former slave owners. But the rest of the stuff, he's spot on. And the fact that uh, Paul Vallis is a, is, a, is a good person, I got nothing you know, bad against him, just the fact that he is a political individual that's been in the realm for quite some time. And uh, I still hold him accountable for the, uh, the degradation of the Chicago Public Schools and other places where he's gone um, with his ideologies of, uh, you know, the, the, he, he actually started the indoctrination of the, of the CRT back in the day with all oh, this uh, equity what? and all this stuff. Yeah, oh, you look, think he's look, look responsible for that? Amy, Amy, look, look back in the day when he was, he was uh, the public school, Chicago public school uh, leader there. And look at the, uh, programs that he implemented. It was the start. I'm not saying it was CRT full blown, but it was the beginning IV. of the. It was the beginning of the end. Yeah, I hear your IV business. Yeah, for the elitist kids and all this business. Oh, elitist kids. kids! Watch your mouth. Not we're not elitist Amy, kids. Seriously, Amy, for the kids, these are kids who couldn't get into selective enrollment schools that have another option. Elitist kids. Amy, come to school. I don't want to fight with you. I don't want to fight with you about. I mean, I just, I know he's your friend and all that stuff, and I got nothing against him, but I'm going to tell you, when I was on the board, I had, they ran things through on the Chicago public school side back in 2000. Go look it up, and you'll see what he did. Did you say when you were on the board of ed? I was in, in at Oakland Community High School. Oh, okay. Well, from, not it. From okay. 1999 to 2010. So I know what I'm talking about with this stuff. I might not have presented it properly. But if you go back and look around around 2002, what was come down in the Chicago public schools was the start of all this, you know, uh, I, this softness. Let's just call it that. How about that? Thanks well, for the call. Different than Joe. CRT, but yeah, Joe, we're gonna have him on next Wednesday, and I will ask him about that. Mm-hmm. Next Wednesday at seven o'clock, he will be here. You know the whole um, he uh, knows the system argument that cuts both ways. Right. It does. I know the system, um, so I understand how things work. Well, does that mean you're going to operate in a way consistent with how things have always been done? Because this is how the system. Are you going to be beholden to the system or are you an agent for system change? He's going to change the culture, Dan. Yeah, I know what you think and and I know what he says, but that's a larger question for somebody who's been in the system for so long and for the most part during his time there. And I understand it's difficult because your job would be on the line. He was not a pronounced reformer. He was somebody who was part of the system. He was not an agent for system change. He was part of the system. If you go back and look at his campaigns uh, for governor in 2002 in the Dem primary with Burris and Blagojevich, when he ran with Pat Quinn in 2014 as his LG candidate, uh, you're not going to find the rhetoric of an agent for system change. 
Ron Southside. Hey, Dan and Amy, Amy, give me a break. Paul Vows. Uh, 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 Dan, you're not going to hear anything about change because that's not what he is about. He, he is, is the now. system. He is now. Oh, he is. <laughs> oh, he, oh like, like they say, oh, he got religious. Yeah, yeah. well, but guess what? I'm not falling for it. Amy, did you say he's going to be on next um, week? Next Wednesday at 7 o'clock. 707. You know what? I'll listen. Okay, listen, Ron. Okay. All right. Thanks for the call, Ron. We'll take your calls afterward. Uh, Craig Mount Greenwood. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. Mount and, uh, Greenwood. This is this should be Paul. This should, this should okay. be uh, Paul. This should be Paul Vallis Base Camp here, Mount Greenwood. Right. Okay. So uh, I'm going to give you the reason why uh, uh, Vallis is second choice to uh, uh, to Willie Wilson. Uh, Willie Wilson is basically not a politician. He don't have any policy. He doesn't talk, uh, you know, talk all the talk, talk, talk. And I believe he'd be like Trump coming in there, man. He's going to do some cleaning house. He's serious business. And there's going to be a lot less talk and bull crap coming in there with Willie Wilson. Vallis, it's like, all right, he's okay, but second place. He's, uh, you know, that's pretty much the way I see it. It's, it's, uh, Tucker Carlson said uh, when he introed Willie on his show yesterday, our preferred candidate for mayor. Ooh, interesting. You know, for all this talk about Brandon Johnson, the uh, CTU Ugh. candidate, uh, you know, uh, coming around the corner at the turn and and uh, staging a late rally. Um, maybe he, maybe there's still a chance that Willie Wilson does that. I'd much rather have Willie Wilson than Brandon Johnson. Well, yeah, if he wins, I might consider moving because that is going to be some scary stuff, folks. He is in bed with the CTU. That's my nemesis. I can't stand them. Uh, Phil, Maryville, Indiana. Hey, uh, morning. Uh, I'd have to say Dan changed my mind. I went from Willie Wilson to uh, Lori Lightfoot. It seriously isn't bad enough in this city yeah. for uh, for a change. We, we need her back in, and people need to get what they voted for. Yeah, thanks for the call, Phil. It's kind of, kind of a, it's a bit of a two-step, right? I mean, um, you can push for Willie Wilson or... Paul Vallis uh, in the uh, the primary, and then if uh, one, neither one makes it, or if Willie doesn't make it, then you can say, okay, well, uh, Vallis isn't running any campaign that can win, so what's the point anyway? Let's just throw in with Lori Lightfoot and cheerlead the uh, maximum punishment required for more people to feel like it's time to do things differently in Chicago, because clearly that's not the case at present. We'll see. We'll see. But you can... You know, make a claim for improvement in the primary, and if that's rejected, then it's maximum punishment time. Tom, Deer Park. Good morning, Dan and Amy. I would pretty much echo all of Amy's comments on Paul Vallis and nothing against uh, Willie. Uh, but Paul, regardless of what he didn't do in previous campaigns, uh, he's going to run on that now. He knows the system. He knows where all the levers are. And the only thing I would add, obviously, I don't vote in the city, but Amy let him know I've got a couple of votes at Bohemian National, a couple at Graceland, and a good two dozen at Suburban All Saints. So we're here to help. Okay. Okay, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Hmm. Yeah. Gee, I wonder why Never Trumper would be so attracted to. Okay, Paul easy. All right. uh, Sandra on Northwest Side. Uh, yes, Paul Ballas is good for the IB. He was good for the charter schools. Yep. However, he missed out on a good percent of the kids by 
along with Chico and Daly, very political, you know, uh, three, who took out vocational ed. And as soon as the test scores started to jump down, not up, Paul Vallis jumped ship with Chico, left. So, you know, you, you missed out. And I think he cheated a lot of these kids that are on the street right now. I really do. Thanks for the call, Sandra. Yeah, he mentions, you know, when he and Gary Chico ran CPS, he mentions that a lot. Uh, Gary Chico, uh, with due respect, I mean, I, I, I personally in, interacted with the guys, fine guy, smart guy, good attorney, just like Paul Vallis, smart guy, capable guy, but he's a technocrat. Um, Gary Chico is no agent for change. So when they were reimagining CPS, how, how did that go? One was supposedly an education revolutionary, Paul Vallis, while Gary Chico was a tool of the Daly administration. How did that work? Well, that, that, now that, he's that, pro-school choice. That story, that story doesn't hold up. Yeah, but, you know, past beha- I know past performance is an indicator of future performance uh, when it comes to your uh, portfolio manager, but past behavior in politics often is a uh, indicator of future behavior in politics. That's all I'm saying. Epiphanies are somewhat rare. They happen. They happen. Change of heart, um, change of attitude, they happen. But they're exceedingly rare, particularly here. You know what I'm so sick of hearing is, oh, he's a white guy, he's not going to win. Oh, so all white men just... Quit your jobs now because you don't deserve anything because you're a white male. Stop it. I was at yoga the other day with a firefighter, and he was saying, well, I'm, I'm going to go for Willie because Paul's never going to win because white dudes can't make it. Well, like, I mean. Come on. What kind of argument is that? Well, it's, it's, I, I don't, it doesn't sound like he was making the argument that it should be that way. He's making the argument that it is that way. Yeah, and, and he conceded. And you may want to take a hard look at the identitarian political culture in Chicago and ask yourself if that probably isn't true or more likely than not to be true. Yeah. Like he doesn't check the box because he's not gay or, you know. Well, this is the identitarian political culture the city has embraced. Right. I I agree. This is why Vallis is a decided underdog, and this is why, in part, I say the campaign he's running right now may get him to the runoff, but it will not get him to the fifth floor. Mary Kay, Western Springs. Hey, you guys. The problem with, I love Paul because he's calm and measured, Amy, and he's smart and all of that I do. Um, But I, you know, I'm not voting in the city either. But Willie has the fire in the belly. Willie connects with a greater population. That's my problem with Paul. What What do you think? I mean, he's dry. His ads aren't so good. Willie's ads on TV are connecting Mm -hmm. with the people. That thing on Tucker Carlson last night was flipping awesome. I mean, really. Don't you think, Dan? Thanks for the comment. I think he did fine. I think I think when he wind up my skirt. I mean, it was, you know, it was whatever. I think Willie is real. Yeah. I don't think he's positioning. I don't think he's posturing. And from my interactions with Willie, he is a lot shrewder than he may come across because of the way he speaks, as we've talked about. I mean, again, uh, if it was anybody else, 
or if, I should say it this way, if it was somebody who you know spoke the king's English, if it was somebody who spoke like Paul Vallis and had built a a fifty million dollar business or whatever it is, coming from a uh, being a, a a sharecropper in the Jim Crow South, making his way here and then building a, anybody else that would be getting like the support from the business community. Oh, look at the business success of this guy. And, but because Willie is from the hood uh, by way of Louisiana and because he didn't even get a grade school education in part because he came up when structural institutional racism was a real thing, Jim Crow. um, He's, you know, dismissed as somebody among the chattering classes who, you know, he doesn't speak proper. Uh, so how could he manage the city and how could he run the city? He doesn't present like one of us. So how could he run the city? Which is so funny because these are the same people that are for endlessly prattling on about diversity and inclusion and tolerance and blah, 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 blah. And they're, you know, they're phony intellectuals and smug elitist D bags. The most of them, anybody else with Willie's resume, and a presentation like a Vallis or somebody, even like a Chewy Garcia or a Roderick Sawyer would be treated very differently by the media. Her perception among the elector would be very different than Willie's. And frankly, that sort of attitude that is being directed at Willie is one of the reasons, it's even more reason to like him, more reason I like him is because I despise the people who look down on him. I despise them. They're terrible. They're terrible human beings. They've done terrible things to the city, and they should be rejected wholesale. And if elevating Willie Wilson rejects those people, then sign me up, which is why I'm a member of Honkies for Willie, or Whitey's for Willie. I'm, a honk, I'm the honky yeah, who right. was a charter member of Whitey's for Willie from four years ago. Right. Ziff, Hyde Park. Woo. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Damn straight. Man, you just blew me off my seat. That's what I do. Wow. Zach. But you're right. You are absolutely right. I'm not going to give my vote until the very end. I'm going to need my whole minute, guys. Uh, you're right about Willie Wilson. Dr. Wilson is a great story. But here's the thing. I've benefited from both gentlemen. Uh, uh, Willie Wilson, Dr. Wilson gave me $10,000 for my baseball program. Uh, uh, Paul Vallis, my brother was dying, and they were going to keep, public school was going to kick him off the insurance. Paul said, "Keep him on and help us bury him." And Paul's a good friend of the family. Now, here's how I'm voting: Willie's a great man. His staff, he picks people that's not good for his staff. That's why they haven't told him to shut up and just show him. That's that's his staff. He, he'll be bad with picking administration. But here's where Paul would: Paul would be the Lyndon Baines, not not Lyndon Baines. He would be the Gerald Ford for us right now. Paul could bring the police and both communities together. Yep. Paul walked in the black community. We've been knowing Paul for years. So I'm going with Paul. If it's down to the two of them, I will go for Paul because Paul could bring the po- po- police and the community together. Paul Vallis, my vote. Th- thanks for the call, Thank Ziff. You. Although I don't know if Paul Vallis is going to embrace that he would be like the Gerald Ford of <laughs> Chicago. It's okay. okay to be nerdy. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. 
Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Part two. (laughs) Oh, boy. Of the Project Veritas undercover sting. The target, Pfizer's Jordan Tristan Walker, the Director of Research and Development for Strategic Operations and mRNA Scientific Planning. So, undercover journalist, James O'Keefe's Operation Project Veritas, befriends Jordan Tristan Walker. And uh, has series of dinners with him where they talk about what Pfizer is doing with respect to their their COVID vaccine program. Uh, we brought this to you yesterday, but just a little refresher in case you missed it. What is Pfizer doing with their COVID vaccine program? Here's what Jordan Christian Walker had to say. What is Pfizer doing, I guess, to optimize, you know, the vaccines now? Oh, we actually had a meeting about that today, so there's a lot. Really? They're doing, uh, I don't know if I should say this. We're exploring, like, no, you know how the virus keeps mutating? Yeah. Well, one of the things we're exploring is, like, why don't we just mutate it ourselves so we can probably develop new vaccines, right? So we have to do that. If we're going to do that, though, there's a risk of, like, as you could imagine, no one wants to be having a pharma company mutating fucking viruses. Yeah. So okay. we're like, do we want to do this? <laughs> so that's, like, one of the things we're considering. Okay. Like, the future, like, maybe we can, like, create new versions of the vaccines and things like that. Okay, so Pfizer ultimately is thinking about mutating COVID? Well, that is not what we say to the public. No. That's why it was, it was a thought that came up in a meeting, and we were like, why, why do we not? It was like, we're going to consider that with more discussions. Okay. That exact reaction, right? We're like, wait a minute. Like, people won't like that. Well, right. Bring the, bring the Wuhan Virology Lab in-house there at Pfizer, uh, mutate the virus, uh, create vaccines for the mutations, and you have an endless stream of boosters and revenue. For, for Pfizer of doing that. So probably what they want to do is like to try to figure out, to some extent, try to figure out like 
you know, there's all these new strains of variants that just pop up. Why don't we try to like catch them before they pop up in nature, and we can develop a vaccine prophylactic for like new variants. Yeah. So that's why they're thinking like if you do it control the lab, then you say, oh, this is an epitope, and so then if they comes out later on, like in the public, you already have a vaccine kind of working. Oh my God, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, isn't that the, like the best business model though? Like, just control nature before nature even happens itself, right? Yeah, yeah. If it works. <laughs> what do you mean if it works? Because, like, some of the times there were just mutations that pop up, right? They were not prepared for it, like with Delta or Omicron right. and things like that. So, who knows? I mean, either way, it's going to be a cash cow. COVID will probably be a cash cow for us for a while going forward. Like, yeah. I obviously like <laughs> Well, I think the whole, you know, I think the whole, like, research of the viruses and mutating it, like would be the ultimate like cash cow yeah it'd be perfect yeah it'd be perfect he's enjoying himself way too much well he's on a date he thinks he's on a date oh yeah so that's why that maybe that's why he's a little bit uh giggly like he's like a school girl Um, and if if you're listening to this, you think, well, wait, is that the gain of function research that Fauci and Rand Paul spent uh, the last couple of years arguing about? No, no, no. Don't call it gain of function research. It's directed evolution. Mm-hmm. Well, after that was posted uh, the other day, uh, part two is James O'Keefe himself confronting. <laughs> oh boy. Confronting Jordan Christian Walker, as is James O'Keefe's want in these exposés, at a coffee shop in New York City. And suffice it to say that Jordan Christian Walker from Pfizer was a little bit taken aback. Oh, really? Didn't see this one coming. Hey there. Is this seat taken? What? Hi. Um, you work for Pfizer. My question for you is, why does Pfizer want to hide from the public the fact that they're mutating the COVID viruses? Is this real life? What is happening here? Why? What is going on here? This is absurd. Why does Pfizer want to hide from the public that they're mutating the COVID virus? Oh, my God. You're on video. You're on video. <laughs> mutating the COVID virus. What is going on here? I need to call the police right now. This is not I don't know what's going on either. This is ridiculous. So you're on video. Uh, we're, 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 I'm a journalist. Bro, first of all, I'm literally a liar. He's, he's on video. Whoa. You're saying we're exploring how the virus keeps um, mutating. Yes, One of the things we're exploring right is why don't we mutate the virus? So please do. Please do call the police. Please do call the police. Please do. You can't do this, guys. Okay. Please do. You're gonna call the police. He's he's uh, gonna call the police for asking him a question. Please do call the police. Please do. He's uh, on tape here talking about mutating the COVID virus. Can I talk to you outside about this? Absolutely not. You cannot use my wife on this. What is your name? Because you you really did. I'm about to see you. This is absurd. Please you have me. someone mock me as if they're going on a date to record me? You don't even know my position at this. What I was your, trying to impress position? a person on a date What's your by position? lying. I was literally trying. Okay. I'm not even a scientist by background. You know what that I came from a consulting firm right. that does business. 
And this please, is please, absurd. Please don't touch me. This is absurd. So please do call the cops. Please do. Why would you call the cops if you have nothing to hide? <laughs> this is this is better than the old SNL 60 Minutes spoof with Martin Short as Nathan Thurm when they do oh, remember, yeah, remember. They do the the Mike Wallace. Uh, you know, ambush Ooh. interviews. Like, oh, I'm not being defensive. He's being defensive, right? Why is it always me? It's why is it ever the other guy? Uh, so, um, also very concerning to uh, Tristan Walker as he is losing his mind over now realizing he that he has been caught on tape saying things, and I, I'm lying. I'm, I'm, I'm well, lying. I was just I trying mean, to impress the tape. Uh, Those were some very specific lies. Right. Those weren't rehearsed. That was, you know. He goes on to also basically say, like, I'm a complete fraud. I'm not a scientist. I came from Boston Consulting Group. So take a listen. Can I talk to you, please, about this video? Okay. Why would you bring race? He's on the phone. There are five white people around me. I'm not saying. We have you on tape talking about mutating the COVID virus. No one mutates a COVID virus. Show you the May I show you the video? No, I want to Do we have to leave? Yes. Okay. No, you cannot just leave. Do you want me to leave? I want the police to come here and see all of you people. Because this is can insane. I, can, can I ask you about this, this video? Insane. Please. You can tell them about how he's lying to a press Here, just, just, is it true what you say? What saying? is this? No. I literally was on a birthday with a guy, and like normal men, you lie to impress a date. Mutating viruses? Do you, do you, do you <laughs> not work for <laughs> Pfizer? <laughs> Sir, do you not work for Pfizer? Do you no, work for Do you currently work for Pfizer, yes or no? Do you currently work for Pfizer, yes or no? So you, you don't work for Pfizer. Making it so much worse. Right. And then, and then they they put a screenshot of his LinkedIn pro page which shows you, you know, the the title that they uh, published in the with the interview that he's the are in director of R&D, strategic operations, mRNA, scientific planning. It's there on his LinkedIn page, too. So if it's a fraud, it's, boy, it's a comprehensive one. Uh, and, you know, it's worse. Then, then, he, then I'm after watching this is awful. Well, then after he says, right, I, I'm, oh. I don't, I'm just a contractor. I don't know what you're talking about. Then it's, then he goes the other direction. If you suspect that, that mutating COVID virus, is this the way the virus started in Wuhan? Why do you think it's okay for Pfizer to do that? She, he's filming the restaurant owner right now. He's filming her. I don't know why he's filming her. Uh, he goes on to say, I'm just trying to help the public. Why are you doing this to me when I'm just trying to help the public? Wait a second. I thought you said you didn't work for Pfizer. And you don't know what anybody's talking about. Now you're saying you're trying to help the public. Do what? He's, he's oh boy, his back he's, is against the wall, and he's making it worse. He's melting down. Then yeah, you're right. He's having a meltdown, and then it gets violent. <laughs> it gets real bad. Dan. It does. This it, is not it, good. But this is after he gets the restaurant, uh, the coffee shop owner, to lock O'Keefe and his crew in the restaurant <laughs> as they're telling him to leave. Ma'am, you locked Melee. the door. Chaos. Ma'am, ma'am, we're trying to leave, but you locked us in here. Call our attorney. Can you please unlock your door? Let us out. No, I don't know what's going on. I don't want you to leave it, but right, I don't know what's going on. What are you trying to kill me? Kidnapping charge. Can you please unlock your door? No, no, don't let them leave. Can you unlock the door? 
Could you please let us leave, ma'am? You can't hold them against their will. We'd like to leave. <laughs> We'd like to leave. Please unlock the door. No. Please, 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 un please unlock the door. Please unlock the door. Please unlock the door. Please unlock the door. 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 This is this is remarkable here. Thank you. Thank you. We're trying to get, get unlock the door. Unlock the door. Unlock the door. Unlock the door. It is not. Stop. Let go of me. Now you're hurting me. What is going on here? You cannot just record people like that. Come on. It's not okay. Come on. It's not okay. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. We're we're in New York City. This is remarkable. I mean, this is a this is like a bad Jerry Springer show, or maybe a good Jerry Springer show going on here. I'm surprised yeah. I didn't grab a chair and start. And hey, but break, they're all fighting break each Geraldo other, pushing Rivera's each nose. other. Yeah, right. Grabbing uh, cameras. So the cops ultimately do arrive, and um, one of the uh, and this is after O'Keefe and one of his uh, camera guys has already left when they finally open the door, and uh, the uh, the Project Veritas reporter uh, that's left behind just shows them the video of what happened. Yeah. Because they were filming it the whole time, and uh, asked the cop, you know, uh, could this guy, could Jordan Christian Walker, be arrested for assault? Would you arrest him? He's charging the guy, charging, charging, charging. You can't make an arrest at this point if you don't have the, the victim right here. Okay. If he was here, you'd arrest that guy. If he was here. Yes. Oh, then we could just walk away then. Not worry about it. If, as, if that's what you guys want to do, then yes. The uh, key there is just to say that, I mean, just for you know, police confirmation after seeing the video of who initiated the contact. And, and it was Jordan Tristan Walker who takes O'Keefe's iPad, smashes it on the ground. Then he's trying to get at the camera, and the camera guy pushes him back off. I mean, it was not that oh violent, gosh. but it was just a melee. It was crazy. And then he jumps in. When they're taking out, he jumps in front of their car and is stopping police. This, he, he he's out of in, his mind. He jumped in front of a car he thought was their car. Right. It wasn't. And it wasn't. <laughs> But, I mean, he almost got hit by the car because he's an idiot. Uh, he's just so desperate. He's like a cat clawing out of a box. You can't do this. You can't. Oh, really? H have you? Um, let me introduce you to Pam Zekman and Dave Savini and uh, Mike Wallace and all the uh, journalists of uh, the left who used to love to do the ambush interviews, love to do the undercover work. But and now, you know, and, and of course, that was great journalism. But now when James O'Keefe does it, oh, my gosh. You know, you can't do this. It's a violation. Blah 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 blah. Well, know mm -hmm. what state you live in. Know what the privacy rules are. It's a two-party consent state, so they could do what they what they did was legal. Uh, yeah. And then uh, Jordan Tristan Walker concluded. You seem defensive. I'm not being defensive. You're the one who's being defensive. <laughs> Why is it always the other person who's being defensive? <laughs> you ever asked yourself that? Why don't you ask yourself that? This is a great question. And um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> It's too bad there wasn't a laugh track that James O'Keefe put into uh, the part two video because it would be appropriate. Jordan Christian Walker losing his mind. Uh, so there, by the way, uh, just so, to, to, to reset uh, what you heard, both in terms of uh, what he had to say on the merits during what he thought was a date 
and then the reaction when he's confronted with what he said. That comes to you just one more time, just to make sure everybody gets it, from the Director of Research and Development for Strategic Operations and MRNA mm. Scientific Planning. Who wants to line up for their booster? Matt, South Bend. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Thank you for taking my call. Statement about the new project, Warped Greed, and uh, just amazing. I, you know, I, I got the shot. I was supporting my family, I thought, and then just this getting into the mix of it is just totally disgusting for me. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Matt. Verlan, South Side. Are you sure this wasn't an episode of Cheaters? It's <laughs> close. It is, James yeah. O'Keefe is more man. James O'Keefe is more man than me to go on a date undercover. As well, he didn't do it. it. Somebody else yeah. did. Somebody else did. Oh, okay. But he yeah. was at right. the restaurant, yeah. and then they waited and, to come and, up to him. And the guy that, that he thought he was on a date with was part of O'Keefe's crew because he, he pointed him out. And he says, I, I thought I was going on a, I thought I was on a date with that guy, and he's all, you know. And, you know, wow. and so, hey, look, this is the only uh, – people say, well, I feel bad for that guy. And I kind of do. And, but, 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 but this is the only way you get any honesty. Yeah. Right? If 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 yeah. Pfizer and these people were more forthright, then the sort of guerrilla journalism that James O'Keefe does would not be necessary, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for a lot. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560, The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. One more note on uh, Jordan Christian Walker. Yeah. <laughs> What? Uh, oh, does he get, did he lose his job over this? Uh, not yet that we know of, but um, there's a lot of people, of course, because it's O'Keefe saying, "Oh, this is a hoax," and so on and so forth. Really, um, graduated Yale in 2013. Of Yale. course he did. Doctor of medicine <gasps> from uh, Southwestern Medical School. Uh, also, O'Keefe tweeted out, uh, "We have obtained internal documents verifying." Walker as Pfizer's Director of Research and Development for Strategic Operations and MRNA. His supervisor reports to Mikhail Dolston, who reports to Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer. Mm. So a lot of detail here. So if it's a hoax, then it's one he's perpetrated on Pfizer and LinkedIn and everywhere else, too. Not a hoax. Doesn't seem to be a hoax. A lot of evidence to suggest the contrary. So... Uh, Yeah, more likely than not that it is very real and you should be exceedingly frightened about uh, who's in charge of uh, helping us combat infectious diseases. And when he brought race into it, too, like, there's five white people here. (laughs) Help me. (laughs) Somebody asked, uh, somebody texted, uh, how did he not recognize, how did he not recognize or know who James O'Keefe was? Because he's been spending all his time on Grindr, obviously. (laughs) All right, real quick, before we go to break, a big, big shout out and happy birthday to one of our avid listeners. Very dear friend of the family, Marlon. It's his birthday today. We want you to have a wonderful day. And uh, thanks for listening. And Marlon, you should call in sometime. You know what I mean on your way to work. So we How wanna... old is Marlon? I don't know. I, you know what? I don't ask. Once we get to a certain age, Dan, we don't ask anymore. You should indeed. know that, right? Yeah, indeed. Okay. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. 
If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Five Memphis police officers have been charged with the murder of Tyree Nichols. This is a a traffic stop that went bad, and the uh, body cam, dash cam, video, whatever video they have, is going to be released this evening. Uh, And preparation and commentary in advance of preparation for that release is already at fever pitch, of course, because Tyree Nichols is a black man, was a black man. Uh, And, uh, you know, as the story goes, as reported, is that he was coming back from uh, he's a 29 year old. He was a 29 year old guy, uh, a FedEx worker. Uh, He was an avid skateboarder. He was turning home from a suburban park where he had taken photos of the sunset, according to family attorneys. On the way home, he stopped for reckless driving, according to Memphis police. Officers approached Nichols to arrest him. A confrontation occurred. He fled. Second confrontation occurred at some point before Nichols was ultimately arrested. Following the arrest, Nichols complained of having a shortness of breath, at which time an ambulance was called. He was taken to the hospital in a critical condition. And three days later, he succumbed to his injuries. Did you see the pictures of him in the hospital? I mean, it was a beat down for three minutes straight. And his mom was interviewed yesterday because she saw the video. Have you seen the video? <clears throat> it's not out yet. I haven't seen it. Right. The mom, I'm just quoting the mom. And she she lasted a minute, and then she couldn't watch it anymore. And they're saying it's going to be worse than Rodney King, you know, the video that you saw of Rodney King beating and to prepare ourselves. And now they're um, preparing Memphis because they think, <clears throat> excuse me, the protesters are going to burn down Memphis. But uh-huh. are they? I mean, they're five black officers. They've all been fired for yes. a reason. Well, that that's a key point. Isn't and that's it? the thing. It's it, now well, I want to see officers, what's going to happen. The five officers charged are black. All of them. Yep. They're black. So what's going to happen? And the mom's out, you know, making the rounds on media or on cable TV stations saying, please protest peacefully, please, please. But the pictures, I couldn't even look at the pictures of him in the hospital. Oh, I mean, you can really barely recognize his face. The grand jury handed down indictments, second degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct and official oppression against all five former Memphis police officers. By the way, Memphis, uh, one of the more violent cities in America, one of the highest, like right behind New Orleans, one of the highest murder per capita rates in the country. So we'll see what the video shows. But, of course, this uh, incident provides the occasion for race-hustling New York Times columnists like Charles Blow to opine about the lack of allyship, from, particularly from you honkies, that were out there uh, protesting in the summer of 2020, the summer of love and lockdowns, you remember, and, uh, you know, calling for defunding the police. What happened to that, Charles Blow? This is exactly what happens when we treat police misconduct and reform as a seasonal fad, when we, when we treat it as if it was a part of a summer of protests and we moved on because crime rose or because politicians got skittish and no one really wanted to worry about anymore about police reform they wanted to move on to other issues, try to avoid the appellation that they were woke 
or that they were for defund the police. Now we are now stuck in a situation where we sit around worrying about and focusing on the angry reaction to violence rather than the police violence that precipitates the angry reaction. That is perverse. We are, we are on television now because it is, it is possible that people will be very upset when they see this video. We don't back up and say, why did we give up on the possibility of real reform in the first place that would have possibly changed some of these patterns in the first place? It is not an anomaly that this happens out of a routine traffic stop. When you think back of all the high-profile police killings, particularly of Black men and women in this country, they start as routine traffic stops. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is a profit imperative that police departments have, rather than, than politicians being brave enough to raise taxes they turn to police departments to help them to make money through fines and summonses. That that becomes the you know, that profit imperative is at the root of of a lot of what we are seeing. And then eventually, out of all of those stops, in a, in a few of them, something goes tragically wrong, and and we start to say, well, let's look at these officers. Let's look at this particular person. How did they act in particular, rather than systemically that there is a problem here? that we are still not dealing with. Mm -hmm. He talks around and round around about it. Um, a key uh, paradox presented by Charles Blow there. Got to listen closely. The situation, the Tyree Nichols case, is not anomalous. That's what he said. Okay. Then at the end of that clip, he says what? In a few of the cases. That is the definition of anomalous. A few of the cases, something like what happened in Memphis happens, but it's not anomalous, it's systemic. So we just don't do traffic stops. Well, we've gotten away from that in Chicago and obviously a lot of other big cities because, uh, number one, well, number one, well, that's, yeah, the down officers, number, number uh, one, number two, traffic stops are dangerous, number three. They become onerous with the paperwork in places like Chicago, so it's not worth it. And so is that what you want to do? Just have – I mean, look, hey, as somebody who's gotten um, more than my fair share of moving violations over the years, you don't want to stop me for speeding? Uh, great. Uh, <laughs> fine you, you by love me. that plan. <laughs> fine by me, but um, do you – is that is that where you want to go? That's why, how you think we'll – that's what you think will cure – the situation of of uh, anomalous police stops that end in violence and uh, even more anomalous that end in death. Just don't enforce any traffic laws. Police don't stop any vehicles for any reason. Then there won't be any confrontation. That seems to be what Charles Blow is arguing. He continued. But the moment that they could get back to regular life, they also got back to regular priorities, and that did not include the defense of these black and brown bodies that were laying in the streets because of police violence. And that, and, and that, is, that is a question that America has to ask itself. Where was your commitment? You, people talk so much about allyship. In fact, the majority of people out marching 
during the summer protests were not even black or Hispanic. They were white people. And then all of that somehow dissipates because you say that crime goes up in, 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 uh, post-COVID because of the trauma of COVID. And all of a sudden, then we now, now we can't talk about it. So these other lives, you know, the number of police killings of black people, uh, of, of American citizens did not go down post two tons when it keeps going up, actually. But now we can't talk about it. The, they, those, those bodies become collateral damage to the fact that you are now scared about a rising crime. The criminal cannot be an excuse for you not to pay attention to people who are innocent and who are killed. Totally straw dog argument. Nobody is saying that the criminal is an excuse for anybody's rights being violated by police. Nobody's nobody's saying that. Nobody supports that. It's a ridiculous proposition. But these are the false arguments that are presented by hustlers like Charles Blow. And where did all the honkies go, Charles? They went back to Naperville. You know, they had done their virtue signaling. They put their pee hats on, uh, the women, too. And they, they, you know, marched in the streets, defund police, Black Lives Matter, blah, blah, we love Marxism, so on and so forth. And then they went home. They had contributed what they felt they needed to contribute to, to, assuage, to assuage their guilt. And so then that's over. Who do you, you think they were? Who do you think they were? Black Panthers? Uh-huh. How anomalous is it? We had this conversation with Raphael Manguel from the Manhattan Institute at the uh, end of the show yesterday. And um, he just presented the data that punctures the arguments of these hustlers like Charles Blow. The typical person coming out of a state prison has between 10 and 12 prior arrests, between five and six prior convictions. These are not people who have been denied second chances. right? If you look at the, the, the quote-unquote police violence issue, what you find is that you know, police make about 10 million arrests a year. They fire their weapons about 3,000 times a year. They use physical force of any kind, and maybe 2% of those arrests that are affected. And when they do, there's almost never an injury. This is not the story that you get when you turn on the news, when you, you know, walk into a university classroom, and that's really what has to change. Yeah, and when you listen to Charles Blow bloviating on MSNBC like you just heard. Well, what message is probably going to get lost on all of this is if police pull you over, just comply i mean it wouldn't have led to this and i know the video i i i haven't seen it you know but and it's probably going to be disgusting like they're you know premiering or they're telling us it's going to be like that um but just again don't resist arrest right it happened in george floyd it happened and it happens everywhere every single time the thing that starts out with is resisting arrest and then it leads to someone's death and the two two of the five officers they've lawyered up and they said no 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 this is not what you think it is and um, more details are going to come out even when there is a resist arrest incident it very rarely leads to death true very rare very rare yes yeah and so and and again one unnecessary death is one too many I concede the point but what Charles Blow is presenting is without foundation it is and instead of trying to uh, provide some context and intelligence to have a measured conversation about this he just comes out with the same incendiary tropes we've been hearing for years and years and years the other part of that too which you heard from Raphael Manguel so 
the problem is not COVID trauma, no. which led to a spike in crime. The problem is big city mayors and prosecutors who don't want to punish and imprison habitual violent offenders. That's the problem. And big city mayors who had stand down orders and let people take whatever they wanted from all the fancy stores on Michigan Avenue and Oak Street, whatever they wanted. Pull up up that U-Haul. That is an illustration of their ideology. Right. John in Bridgeport, you're in Chicago's Morning Answer. All right, Dan and Amy, I got one for you. It really makes me sad and mad. Amy, I'll let you do the follow-up. Really bothered with the media with this one, but... This past Sunday, three college students, two of whom from IIT and one from Governor State, uh, needed some computer supplies, and their app took them to 84th and just off the Dan Ryan there. Oh boy! Um, they took the bus down there. Right when they took the, right when they got off the bus, they were greeted by a, a car full of thugs with, uh, with guns. They ordered them to get on the parking lot ground as they searched them, went through them took their belongings, and then, as they were face down, felt the need, like in St. Valentine's Day Massacre, to just execute them right there with several rounds of bullets. Killing two, one still surviving, but nothing said on the media about this. Nothing said anywhere about this. Never. I have not heard a word about this story. And here you go. And the video is there in the parking lot, too, if if they're able to release it. Right. I'll contact um, CPD. By all means. And it's, it's... it's horrible because whether you have college students or whether you have uh, people you know in college, they, you know they go to stuff like this all the time, and just to get massacred like this is unbelievable. And all you right, said guys. this happened last weekend. This Tom? past Sunday. Okay. This past Sunday. Okay. Take care, guys. Thanks for the okay. call, John. Um, how bad is it in big cities? Well, we've t- told you the data. It uh, probably bears repeating. It's so stunning. Averaging about 100 carjackings a day, car thefts and slash carjackings a day this month, more than 2,200 car thefts in Chicago this month. It's so bad that they had a. Well, I, I thought I, I thought I thought the I thought when the barometric pressure goes down that uh, crime goes down. It uh, did in the up, past, Dan. Up 156 percent year over year. 156. And it's so bad, if you own a Kia or a Hyundai, that they're handing out. Remember the club? We're going old school now. Do you remember that, Dan, that you put on your steering wheel? They're giving those away at a community meeting yesterday. Come on, if you own one of these cars, you can just take it. And no one's immune, just like uh, Trevor Simeon found out when his car was stolen from the Beverly Country Club parking lot last summer. Eagle safety, Philadelphia Eagle safety. I hope he can get to the NFC Championship game on time. C.J. Gardner-Johnson got his car stolen after their uh, win against uh, – after they got home after their win against uh, San Francisco. Exactly who took my car. There you go. Thank you. I heard that. Yep. Yeah, if you want me to, I can send these clips. Yeah, it's good. I know exactly who stole my bro. Yeah, don't worry, buddy. We got y'all on camera. Wow. Wow. Wait, where was that angle? That's how y'all getting down? 
in Philly, y'all still niggas after a win? Y'all <laughs> still is my blank after a win? Yeah. Yeah, that's how they're getting no down in Philly. Yeah. Larry Krasner, the Kim Fox double in Philly. Jim Kinney, the honky version of Lori Lightfoot in Philly. Same deal. Same deal in all these big cities. Something uh, Charles Blow and these race hustlers don't want to address. Oh, and by the way, what's happening in Illinois? Oh, yesterday, uh, our duly elected Attorney General Kwame Rowell filed a brief with the Supreme Court arguing for the Supreme Court to uphold the constitutionality of the Safety Act. So, uh, God, their focus so is what's the going on in Chicago can make its way to the suburbs. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. 15th Ward Alderman Ray Lopez uh, represents the Southwest Side neighborhoods, West Inglewood, Brighton Park, Back of the Yards, Gage Park. He was a candidate for mayor. He dropped out of the race, and he endorsed Willie Wilson for mayor. And he joins us now. Alderman Lopez, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Good morning to you both. Uh, So uh, talk a little bit about uh, your process uh, we talked to you when you were uh, considering running for mayor. You announced, uh, then you decided not to go forward. Just the the uh, decision you made about your own candidacy, and then lead that lead us to your decision to endorse Willie Wilson from the remaining field. When I was in the race originally, I ran. I was the first one to announce, and when I left, there were nearly a dozen candidates in the race, all trying to replace Lori Lightfoot. And what I had saw being created with so many individuals in the race was a path for victory for Lori Lightfoot. And I think you, I, and all of your listeners can agree that is the absolute last thing Chicago needs, a second term with Lori Lightfoot. Uh, The only way to ensure her defeat was to narrow down the field and to coalesce behind one of her stronger opponents. And in my opinion, that is Dr. Willie Wilson. He and I have worked together over the years, not just in this election season, but in every season for the past few years, trying to bring jobs to the community, trying to use the city's $1.2 billion water and sewer main replacement program as a jobs program to put people to work all across Chicago, as well as to bring uh, important PPE and materials to our first responders and essential workers. We've been building and building a working relationship for years. And I felt that he would be the best choice for me and my ward, having a mayor who not only answers my call, but has proven himself to work with our communities. And I endorsed him and I continue to push for his uh, victory because we need a man who not only understands how to work with people, to work with different communities, to go outside of their respective bases, but to build coalitions, Uh, but is also unafraid to stand up to the criminal element in our city. And that is something that he has espoused uh, famously or notoriously, even recently as last week. 
but he does this from a place of truth because this is where his heart is. Having been a victim and seeing his own son killed, uh, he knows the pain that people go through. And we often lose sight of the, in the numbers of the violence that there are families and victims associated with each one of them. And Doc will speak for all of them and for all of us. What if he doesn't make the runoff? Are you going to be supporting another candidate then? And where do you draw the line? I know you're not going to be backing Mayor Lightfoot, but what about a Chewy Garcia? I'm familiar with Chewy, and to be he's an empty suit. Yep. <laughs> and I'm gonna, and that's as polite as I can say it. Look, 30 years in government, he has five different pensions coming his direction, Ooh. and not a single achievement that anybody can point to. Little Village, which is his home base, is no better for his presence. It's not safer, so I don't care what he says about building a safer community uh, because it's a lie. All he is is an opportunist, and Chicago needs more than an opportunist mayor. Uh, you uh, had uh, some infamous contretemps with uh, Lightfoot about public safety. She uh, even uh, swore at you. She was so upset. Oh, yeah, and, um, <laughs> uh, right, yes, yes. <laughs> And and so it seems to me, so and and when you announced you, public safety was central, backing the police, and you've been uh, one of the more outspoken aldermen in terms of backing the police and the need for police to do police work and to have civilian support yes. so that we get habitual violent offenders off the streets and so on and so forth. So it seems to us, we were having this conversation earlier. There's two candidates who agree with you about that. Willie Wilson is one, and Paul Vallis is the other. So the, the choice between Willie Wilson and Lori Lightfoot's obvious. The choice between Paul Vallis and Willie Wilson is a little less obvious to a lot of people. Uh, how did you make the decision between those two? You know, I've spoken with Paul on a couple of occasions, and Paul is eminently qualified because he's very knowledgeable. Uh, but at the end of the day, I need to go with someone who, one, I know I can work with, and two, that I know I have worked with. And Dr. Wilson and I, as I said earlier, have worked together when there was no name on a ballot, when there was no ballot to choose from. Uh, and that matters to me. Um, in, any, in any political arena, you have a choice of going with what people promise or what people have done. And I can speak from personal experience and know that Dr. Wilson has done for my ward, my police districts, my communities, uh, long before there was an election to even discuss when we were trying to help everyone get through the pandemic, get through Lori Lightfoot's excessive uh, shutdown of Chicago. We were all trying to work our way through it to protect our workers, protect our first responders, protect our police officers. And Dr. Wilson was there with me in that fight. Uh, and that has not been lost on me. What do you think he needs to do, though, to push himself, you know, over the finish line to get to the runoff? We see signs everywhere, every billboard in my neighborhood. If it's empty, it's got a Willie Wilson uh, picture of him on it. But what is he? What, what recommendations do you have for him? What I believe, um, and I know uh, Dan mentioned on his Twitter, uh, Willie's uh, performance last night on Tucker, uh, which I was very pleased with. You know, he has to connect with the thousands of people who are forgotten in the city of Chicago, and those are the families and vic- of victims of Chicago's violence. He himself is part of that group. And sadly, it's a growing demographic in the city that nobody wants to talk about and almost nobody in the mayor's race can relate to. If we are going to uh, 
have him as our mayor. He has to foster that uh, emotional connection. And I think he has to narrow the band a little bit, um, in my opinion, on some of the policy issues, which I've been helping him with, as a number of other people have as well. But we need a leader who is willing to listen to all ideas. And Dr. Wilson readily admits he doesn't know everything about what's going on, but that he's willing to listen and willing to bring in the best and the brightest to make it happen. And that is something that we clearly have never seen from this administration. And I don't think we're going to see from a number of the candidates in this race who are puppets of somebody else. Dr. Wilson is willing to open the door, put more seats at the table, uh, and he needs to get that message out because I think that is the only way that you're going to fix a lot of these monumental problems that Lori Lightfoot is leading the next administration. She has a budget that's grossly out of balance, uh, only functional now because of Joe Biden's federal dollars that cover up all of the debt and budget gaps that she's put in. Uh, you still have a 45 years, lots of her 48 years of mandatory uh, cost of living tax increases that are still on the books. And you have a police department as well as an entire city workforce that doesn't want to be here anymore because of the way they've been treated by this administration. Well, I tell, lot you, to do. I tell you, but this is all going to get uh, solved when people gobble up those Chicago social bonds. Uh, right. That's going right? to save us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I'm uh, liquidating which, which everything I have Chicago, to get in on that action. Yeah. Which saves Chicago all of $80,000 in a $16 billion budget. <laughs> $80,000 already? Wow, that's great. Oh, we just, I was we expecting just, so much more. We just have, you We're know, rolling right now. we just have a few tens of billions to go. Um, so, uh, the, the whole system thing, the, you know, Willie admits he doesn't know, you know, every, how everything works and so forth. Well, you know, the flip side of that argument is we've had mayors for the last half century that know the system. You know, they know the system. They, that he's good. That, that person's going to be a steady hand because they know the system. That person knows, uh, how to keep people safe because she's a former federal prosecutor in the case of Lori Lightfoot. Well, the people that know the system. And take a look around. What does the system produce from uh, all these people right. in leadership that know the system? We need a mayor who is focused on outcomes, not the system. And we've heard that time and time again, uh, particularly from conservative people who say you have to support outcomes, not systems, whether it's in education, whether it's in, in city services, you name it. And I think uh, Dr. Wilson will bring that same mindset uh, to the city of Chicago because clearly if you're just here to protect the status quo, if you're not willing to completely shake things up to bring in some new ideas, you know, if you're trying to make an omelet, you're going to wind up with a hard-boiled egg instead. And we don't need any more boiled eggs in the city of Chicago. Something interesting about this uh, relationship you have with Willie Wilson, you know, I, I absolutely loathe the racial politics of the city, not because I don't want people to celebrate their heritage and the, the great diversity of the city. That's all fine. That's all well and good talking about the racial politics, emphasis on mm -hmm. politics, and say, well, what's the big deal? Uh, Ray is a Latino and Willie's black, but we've seen Latinos and blacks come together before. Yeah, yeah but not exactly. Uh, they come together, they rally around the flag uh, based on identity to protect the system, to distribute the spoils of war. It seems to me this may be an opportunity for uh, a black po politician and a and a Latino politician to come together to change the system in a way that will serve blacks and Latinos and everybody else, but it's not so 
driven by race identity. No, I think you're absolutely right, because identity politics is what's ruining this country and has ruined this city. And we see it even in our remapping, where you had to put people in little boxes simply because they were black, white, Latino, or Asian, as opposed to creating districts that put everyone together and force everyone to work together for the common good. Dr. Wilson and I, even when we were opponents, were friendly, cordial, uh, because we are friends and cordial to each other, just personally. And there's a, a genuineness to that. Um, the fact that so many people, when I dropped out, automatically assumed that I was going to go with Chewy because right. we hit, have the same brown card right. is ridiculous because we are nothing alike. Um, I don't support criminals. He does. I have accomplishments. He doesn't. And that's not how, I, you know, I'm not required to automatically go with the man with the mustache simply because we both have about the same melatonin in our skin. That's not how politics should work. And I think that, uh, to your point, Dan, this shows that you can be aligned by ideas and goals as opposed to just simply the color of your skin, which that's what Dr. Martin Luther King wanted. That's what Harold Washington proved. And if you really can serious about that, then this is an opportunity for he and I to show Chicago that you don't have to just be set in the tracks other people have made for you, that you can't step out of the rut and do something different if you want something different. So, Alderman, I want to know if you're still licking your wounds this morning, because yesterday Governor Prisker put out a list of aldermen that he's supporting <laughs> for re-election, and guess what? You're not on the list. Why are you off the list, Mr. Lopez? You know, I didn't know that the governor was making endorsements. And when I look at some of the names that are on that list, I'm, uh-huh. I, it's not a, a, a crowd that I associate with anyway. But what I think is very telling uh, to me, Amy, is that if you look at who's not on the list, all of your common sense aldermen have been skipped. Like who? All Give of us those names. Business, I mean, like Alderman Spizzato, Alderman Napolitano, Alderman uh-huh. Tabars, I believe Alderman O'Shea. All of us who believe in both law and order, strengthening our economies by, you know, making it easier to do business and delivering city services, all were skipped. Yeah. All of the ones who support bail reform, all of the ones who are criminal enablers, all of the ones who are yes-men bobbleheads, basically, um, got an endorsement. And I think... You know, the governor has a right to choose who he wants to work with in city council. But I think I heard him in a message saying yesterday uh, that he wasn't going to endorse anyone in the mayor's race because he wants to work with everyone. Well, it's hard to work with everyone when you start picking winners and losers, and especially when you're going to have a number of winners who you left out. Did he uh, did he refrain from endorsing uh, Kim Fox over Bob Conway in the primary for a Cook County State's Attorney uh, a couple years ago because he wanted to work with everybody. I don't. I don't. That so. I don't remember. I, remember. I, don't, think, I, don't, I don't think. I don't, I don't so. remember. I think. I think he endorsed Kim Fox. I, in fact, I know he did. Um, so it's interesting that that's. So did Lori Lightfoot. Right. So that's so that's a, so that's the posture now though by Pritzker because it was useful because he was playing racial politics with his endorsement of Kim Fox in advance of his reelection. But now and and since he and Lori Lightfoot. Uh, are not necessarily bosom buddies. He's going to play the, oh, you know, I want to work with anybody and everybody. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if uh, Vallis or Wilson is in the runoff if he chooses to make an endorsement after the fact. Um, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So that that group of common sense aldermen you spoke of, yourself included, um, what can you guys do and what is your individual reaction to that OIG report on the Chicago Public Schools that found an unbelievable number of incidents, credible incidents of sexual abuse of students and potentially – yeah, and and a and potentially a multi-billion-dollar fraud committed by Chicago public schools with respect to their average daily attendance. Well, I definitely believe that the city council needs to get involved. Uh, our committee on ethics needs to be reviewing and bringing our partners over there from CPS to come in and testify before us as to what's going on, what they're doing to keep children safe, to keep taxpayer dollars safe. Because it's absolutely abhorrent that in 2022, last year, that over four, well, actually, let me take that back. There were 1,800 reports to the Inspector General regarding uh, uh, sexual allegations with students and staff, of which 400 proceeded. But the fact that we hit, nearly hit 2,000 complaints is mind boggling. The fact that uh, they are underreporting in order to get higher funding. It, it's criminal. And we know that the mayor's not going to bring this forward. She's not going to bring in the light on what her, on Pedro's doing over there. Um, but we need to. And as far as the common sense folks go, like myself, you know, we've seen in Chicago, in the New York, excuse me, where they've created their own caucus because they have to, you have to have somebody who knows and appreciates all, both sides of the coin of government and you can work with, and I think we may actually be forming down the road a caucus of our own to push back against some of the madness that we see from the Red Rose Brigade and others in city council who are keeping government out of balance for the average working person. He is 15th Ward Alderman Ray Lopez. Alderman Lopez, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan and Amy, thank you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories. Only the biggest guests. And only the biggest opinions. This is AM 560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Chris Buskirk, friend of the show, publisher of American Greatness, amgreatness.com, has a piece over a compact, How Republicans Sold Out America, talking about uh, where Republicans have been over the last, well, the, the 30 years preceding Trump and where they are today as um, the uh, cohort that was largely in charge of the party pre-Trump is at odds with some of the more populist leadership of the party at present, including Trump. Uh, He writes uh, that by the 1970s, conservative ideologues had come to advocate market solutions for just about everything. Some of those solutions made sense, but other policies proved disastrous, including free trade and financialization that led to the breakdown of the middle class, the hollowing out of the American interior, an epidemic of deaths of despair. 
To reverse these trends, he argues, Republicans must challenge free market orthodoxy. And he gives a couple of examples of what he's talking about in terms of his view on what constituted disastrous policies like the Glass-Steagall Act, which uh, allowed commercial banks to own investment banks and insurance companies and engage in proprietary trading. It was supposed to let banks compete with large foreign banks, but what he would argue, and many others, is that it actually created a too-big-to-fail environment that we all remember in the run-up to the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009. From the 1980s until 2016, Republicans sought to make U.S. companies more competitive with foreign companies. The problem was it was never possible to drive low wages, which drive wages low enough to compete with Chinese labor, writes Buzzkirk. And this is where the transformation happened, he argues, where the Democrat Party became the party of the coasts, the big cities, the very wealthy, the large corporate interests, including big tech. Uh, and he reminds us that pre-Trump, it wasn't until back in the 50s when Dwight D. Eisenhower ran for president on raising the minimum wage, expanding Social Security and unemployment insurance that a Republican presidential candidate was talking about the desirability of rising wages for the middle-income American. And this leads him back to Angelo Cotavia and where the divide is at present. And this has been argued uh, by scholars like one of my favorites, Joel Kotkin, the author of The New Feudalism. Uh, he talks about the, the uh, clerisy versus the yeomanry. Uh, he, Buzzkirk, invokes Angelo Cotavia, who's credited with popularizing, if not coining, the term ruling class, the uh, recently departed academic Cotavia, where uh, you really break it down into a uh, country class versus ruling class. That was Cotavia's formulation, the ruling class versus the country class. Buzzkirk writes, the more important divide in America today is one between those who've captured a disproportionate share of wealth, power, and status and everyone else. The tension between the ruling class and the country class is profound, but often obscured by ruling class factional conflicts for which the country class is dragooned into action as unwitting foot soldiers who lose no matter which faction wins. And this is part of the argument that Trump made when he ran for president in 2016, wasn't it? where you had uh, two terms of a Republican president, two terms of a Democrat president, and 16 years of stagnant wages, which in part gave rise to a populist like Trump. So is that the right formulation for the Republican Party? Are those criticisms of free market uh, solutions to things like American competitiveness and a robust middle class that leaves more uh, to their kids than their parents left for them, sort of the generational comp intergenerational compact. It's a, a complicated question and one that uh, brings forth uh, passions from both schools of thought. To get reaction to the argument, Pleased to be joined again by Don Boudreau. He's an American economist, author, professor, and co-director of the Program on the American Economy and Globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. You can also 
get his musings at cafehayek.com, which is a good blog. Named Don, thanks for joining us. It. What's that? Said <laughs> so you named your dog after it. I not, actually I named Hayek. my dog after Frederick, Frederick von Hayek, Frederick not Cafe Hayek, <laughs> but yeah, close enough. Uh, Don Boudreau, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. I love your dog's name. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was yeah. it was it was tough. It came down to Friedman versus Hayek, and I just thought Friedman doesn't necessarily invoke Milton, and so yeah. That's that true. anyway, I, I got digress. Stereo once named Adam Smith. So. Okay, well, there, oh, boy, the, <laughs> both, both, both the first name and last name. Oh, okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I could have done that. Yeah. I could have done Milton Friedman. But it's just like, get Milton Friedman, come here. Milton Friedman, I don't know. It just it would sound yeah, weird. little Milty. We just called him Adam. Yeah. yeah, it sounds weird anyway. in the park, you know. Um, so, Don, what about uh, Chris Buzkirk's argument about uh, uh, things like Glass-Steagall and how that uh, – served to the, the detri- to the detriment of middle-income families in America rather than the promise that uh, those sorts of ostensibly free market solutions would lead to more prosperity across income quintiles. I wish, I wish people like that on the right and the left would actually look at the facts, which are not that difficult to acquire. There's a lot wrong in this country, but it is simply untrue, just uh, uh, patently untrue that American wages have stagnated, that income, um, uh, 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 that, that uh, uh, mobility across income groups has diminished. It's simply untrue that the middle class has been hollowed out. It's simply untrue that we're, we're deindustrializing. There's no evidence for, this propos- for these propositions, and all the evidence points against it. I recommend to your readers who, who doubt me, there's a wonderful little book. It came out three years ago, early 2020, uh, so you know, right, right before COVID, uh, by the economist Michael Strain, who is certainly no libertarian uh, uh, ideologue. He's a very competent, uh, empirically-oriented economist at the American Enterprise Institute. It's called The American Middle Class. I think it's called The American Middle Class is Not Dead, and then, but Populism Could Kill It. And he's, just got, he's got reams and reams of easily accessible data with all the sources in there that show that real wages have been have been rising during this time period. Fringe benefits have been rising. Income mobility is 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 is, is perfectly healthy. Uh, industrialization uh, continues apace. We Americans continue to produce a lot of things. Uh, so these people they just get their facts wrong. They keep repeating the same fallacies, and the fallacies are so ingrained in the popular narrative that they've taken on a life of their own. Once you look at the facts. The whole story collapses. Now, it is true. It is true. There are a lot, there are a lot of problems with, with the country. The, the, this distinction that you mentioned that Joel Kotkin uh, uh, identifies, I think that's real. You, we do have a divide between these arrogant intellectual elites and ordinary people. But that divide is largely driven now or driven to a large degree now by this very myth. We have people on the right and the left saying to ordinary Americans, look, you don't realize you've stagnated, you've stagnated, uh, and it's because of free trade, it's because of tax cuts, it's because of deregulation. And so we have to reject all those policies uh, and, and return to the glorious days of the 1960s and 70s. Uh, and, 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 and that gives these elites more power. Far from taking power from uh, elites, far from giving power to ordinary men and women, the very policies that these people propose would actually genuinely take more power, economic and political power, from ordinary people. 
So I just wish they would get their facts straight. If, they, if you get your facts straight, the whole story again utterly collapses. Here's here's the 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 problem. One of the problems is. So what do you say? To, let me give you a couple examples from Illinois uh, because I think they represent certainly the Rust Belt, but but what's going on in the country generally and. I expect a Schumpeterian response from you, but we'll see. Um, Rockford, Rockford, Illinois, used to have a thriving manufacturing sector. It used to be a real manu- uh, manufacturing hub for a mid-sized city. Manufacturing pulled out of Rockford, and that community has not recovered since that started occurring in the 80s. Galesburg, another uh, even smaller community. You know, a big employer like Maytag pulls out, and uh, and that that community never recovers. And a, a lot of people over the course of the last 25 years leading into the Trump election saw these companies pulling out, saw these companies uh, offshoring at least some of their operations and said, we're losing our jobs, we're losing our livelihoods, we're losing our community. And what I see is these companies allied with the government getting benefits for offshoring economic opportunities that would, would uh, are more appropriate for Americans and American politicians should be looking out for Americans? Uh, so a couple of things. Uh, the overall health of an economy cannot be judged by what happens to a particular location. Uh, now, I know that that sounds kind of harsh. It may be that Rockford is more stagnant now than it was 40 years ago. Uh, but if you look at, and these are the only these I submit are the relevant statistics. If you look at the overall performance of ordinary American workers, what the Bureau of Labor Statistics calls non-supervisory and production workers, you know, hard hat workers, you know, production line workers, non-supervisors, across America, their wages are rising and their economic opportunities have been increasing. Again, I'm talking about pre-COVID. COVID messed a bunch of things up, uh, and so. The people once in Rockford are now somewhere else earning higher wages to, to the extent that Rockford has, in fact, uh, uh, perhaps lost, lost population. Farming communities 100 years ago, 120 years ago, lost population. This happens. This is inevitable in any kind of dynamic economy in which you have, which you have economic growth. Economic growth changes the location of particular activities. It changes the kinds of activities that are dominant. Uh, both in the country as a whole and in particular particular locations, if we try to prevent change, this is, so this now comes to the Schumpeterian part of my answer that you rightly anticipated. If you try to prevent uh, each person from losing a job or each community from changing the, 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 the tenor and type of its economic activities, then you will doom that economy to stagnation, and everybody will be economically worse off uh, uh, over time. Uh, and, and so, but again, when we look at the overall statistics, we find no evidence that ordinary Americans are are suffering. If, if the people in Rockford, for example, uh, uh, were not able to find jobs in Rockford, of course, it would just be one example of of, of many Rust Belt uh, locations. Uh, presumably, these these people would be out there somewhere in the unemployment ranks. They would be driving wages lower uh, when, when they do get jobs. We don't see any evidence of that, Dan. Um, and one other smaller point, uh, and fortunately, I think this point is swamped by the larger dynamism of the American economy. Uh, uh, there are, you know, different states, of course, do have do have different policies, some better than others. 
uh, Illinois is not known for its its recent uh, <laughs> uh, friendliness toward yeah. investors yeah. and entrepreneurs. Right. You don't say. And, yeah. and whereas South Carolina and Florida and Texas are. And so um, uh, it, it's not. It wouldn't be surprising if, as the relative attractiveness of doing business in, say, South Carolina. Uh, rises relative to that of doing business in Ohio and, and Illinois, for example, that you would find some communities in Illinois suffering job and business and, and population loss to these places that are more friendly to commerce. Uh, one, one other uh, challenge to the free market argument, it seems to me, is the rule of law. Um, you know, markets depend on laws to enforce property rights. Uh, yep. And so... I think what a lot of people see as well as Republicans and Democrats over the last 35 years who didn't enforce the rule of law in a in this perhaps as the most pronounced example, border security. And so if if you are creating an artificial market uh, with respect to labor, for example, by not enforcing border security, and not enforcing the border, and then you're providing benefits uh, for people who arguably under the law wouldn't be entitled to those benefits, like even being in this country, then why should I have confidence that you're going to represent my interests when you won't enforce the law that's supposed to protect them? One of the great enduring and troubling and troublemaking fallacies that has been on the loose for quite some time is the equation of Republicans with free marketeers. It's a handful of them are, but the typical Republican is a politician. Yeah. Uh, I would say at the margin, generally a little bit more sensible than the typical Democrat these days, but not much more so often the case. But the fact that Republicans pursue various policies, uh, domestic and international, uh, should not be interpreted. Those policies should not be assumed to be pro-free market. Republicans play politics, and politicians... It's just part of what they do, unfortunately. They dispense special privileges. They uh, uh, appease special interest groups at the expense of the, of the larger population. They violate, in other words, the rule of law frequently. It's what they do. And so you, I agree with you. Uh, Republicans are not very good uh, uh, at, at – at, they're not very principled at sticking to the rule of law. They're very good at talking about it. Uh, the Democrats – at least have given up the pretense of pretending that they favor the rule of law. Um, The the Republicans are a little bit more hypocritical, I think, now. Both Republicans and Democrats, with few exceptions on both sides, violate the rule of law. And you're exactly right to the extent that the rule of law is violated, then the basis for a thriving market economy is threatened. Uh, It's a cancer on that. Um, uh, the, The market can take a lot of abuse, but it can't take an unlimited amount of abuse before it starts collapsing. Uh, so there, there, there's a lot of problems on, 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 on both sides uh, that are accurately described as violations of the rule of law. I agree with that. He is Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And again, you can also check him out at CafeHayek.com, his writings at least. Don Boudreau, thanks as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer.
This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Amy, we talked uh, quite a bit about it earlier in the week. After Nick Clegg, the uh, global public affairs president of Meta, appeared with our friend Brett Baer to talk about the reinstatement of Donald Trump on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, Clegg was asked by Baer about um, the Facebook files, if you will. Unfortunately, there are not enough of them disclosed because Elon Musk is not running Facebook. But the Facebook content moderation approach, number one, and then connected to collaborating with the government to do the government's bidding and the bidding of various government agencies the way it's been documented Twitter did. And uh, this is what Nick Clegg said. Bear specifically asked him about the Hunter Biden story, as well as discussion of all things COVID on the meta platform, Facebook. And this Clegg didn't tackle COVID, but he did tackle the Hunter Biden story. And you can extrapolate from his answer on the Hunter Biden story what he would say about their moderation of COVID debates. Biden's story, what, I mean, other platforms, I think it was Twitter, sort of just deleted the story altogether. We didn't. You could still find the story. Millions of people did. But for seven days, the prominence of the story was, was less... Uh, for those seven days, it's just part of the way our systems work to allow our fact checkers. We have a, a network of independent fact checkers um, to, 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 to look at to look at the story if they wanted to. They didn't. And after seven days, that what's called in the jargon, that temporary demotion was taken off. So we, we didn't remove it. People could find it. Many people saw it on Facebook. We were simply following the rules by which our systems currently operate. Of course. Yeah, and the independent fact-checkers, and who could question the integrity of the independent fact-checkers, those networks, um, just had to demote it for seven days, you know, to get through the election, and then people could find it. For more on this, please be joined by uh, Robbie Suave. He's the senior editor of, uh, senior editor at Reason, reason reason.com, host of Rising on Hill TV as well. Robbie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Nice to talk with you. Uh, So uh, were you... um, uh, content with what Nick Clegg had to say about uh, Facebook's content moderation policies. And, and as to the question of their collaboration with government, he said, you know, look, uh, we frustrate governments uh, more often than not uh, by refusing to do what they want us to do. So their posture is for free and open debate, you know, I mean, except when the independent fact trackers say no. Right. I- I'm incredibly frustrated with the content moderation policies at our major social media companies, as are many users, um, citizens. We, we have learned so much more from the Twitter files and various disclosures about just how much uh, bad moderation was being done at the encouragement of governments and at the behest of government. I do think it is a fair point, however, in, in parsing all this, to see that they did push back um, somewhat in some cases. So the Hunter Biden case is not a case of pushback, right? They did that of their own volition, and it was, it was a bad decision. Twitter then later tried to justify it, for instance. But in a lot of the other cases, you, you do see from the Twitter files, right, that like the FBI will say to Twitter, for instance, um, 
this is Russian disinformation. You got to take this down. And at first, Twitter says, "No, we've looked at this. It's 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 nothing. It's not a big deal. You're overplaying this." And then it got more threatening, and it, it got well. You know, if you don't do anything about this, you're you're harming democracy. We think major media corporations and democratic politicians will have something to say about that. And then finally, they start going along um, with, with Facebook and COVID stuff. It was very it was much more willing than that. But um, but look, there, there is. There is an issue here in that a lot of the bad stuff seems to me that was actually very much coercive from the government's perspective. In what way? Can you explain? Yeah. Um, well, as I just said, with the with the Twitter files, you see in in the FBI emails to Twitter them saying, look, here is Russian disinformation. You have to do something about it. And Twitter saying this isn't really Russian disinformation. And then them saying, we're going to go to we're going to we're going to tell Politico you're not taking uh, misinformation seriously. Oh. And at the same time, you have uh, you have political figures railing against these companies publicly. Joe Biden in July of 2021 said Facebook is killing people because it doesn't moderate more content relating to COVID. He said that. And then his communications, uh, one of his communications people, uh, Kate Bedingfield, I believe her name is, she went on TV and said, if they don't take what our criticism more seriously, we should change Section 230, which is the statute that has to do with how, how, how much um, liability they have for content on the platform. He, they were basically saying, if you don't do what we say, we're going to look at having punitive regulation hit you. So, you know, look, you can be as frustrated with the social media companies as you want. And to be clear, I am very frustrated. But, um, but they were definitely between a rock and a hard place. They were definitely looking at being this, at least the hint more than the hint of being punished for not doing what the administration wanted. Right. Um, although what comes across to the Twitter files and what comes across even with, uh, from some pronouncements Mark Zuckerberg has made is a disposition of collaboration. Their, their default is to collaborate, is to listen, rather than saying, you know, um, we're not in the business of taking our marching orders from you at the FBI or CDC. They go on, as Nick Clegg did, with Brett Baer and say, we're a private company and this and that and so forth. We make our own decisions. But but the feel of those Twitter files, the feel of what um, those the emails uh, between the CDC and Facebook that you wrote about is a disposition, is a default position to try to accommodate. Is that fair? I, I think that that is fair. I mean, these, these are hard. <laughs> it's hard to tell exactly what they're thinking is. Yes, I, I think they're staffed disproportionately by people who are very amenable to this, who want to be good citizens and define good citizenship as, you know, kind of reflexively listening to what federal officials and federal health officials and maybe federal law enforcement have to say. At the same time, they're being held hostage a little bit. Everyone in politics is railing against them. I mean, Republicans want to regulate these companies for taking for censoring too much content. Right. And Democrats want to want to regulate them for not restricting enough content. So they, they have no right. friends in, yeah, in but, politics, and it's really hard. Well, but the problem is they're playing politics rather than going back to their original mission statement, something even Jack Dorsey conceded, uh, you know, well, after his ouster, that, uh, you know, our, our original mission statement was this, and they strayed away from it. If you would have said, look, we are a free marketplace of ideas, that's who we said we were going to be, we're going to be that, and if you don't like those discussions, then we understand you don't like them. But 
uh, we said this is who we're going to be, this is who we're going to be, rather than a sort of swinging back and forth, catering to one side or catering to the other based on where they think their political bread is buttered at any given moment. And that, you know, puts them in the middle of the road, getting hit by traffic going both ways. Yeah, I, I think that's basically what happened. And I mean, they've been hauled, the, the leaders of these companies, Zuckerberg and then and, and Dorsey back when he was in charge and et cetera, you know, they've been hauled before Congress multiple times to be to be yelled at by members of both parties, uh, members of both parties who are somewhat um, advanced in their age and have, I, I think, to be charitable, only a, a tenuous grasp of the technologies involved you know, being being told, why haven't you done this? And why haven't you done that for people who don't even understand it? Uh, that, you know, that's that's something we can't totally write off, even as we express, I think, very legitimate frustration with choices they made with respect to election stuff and COVID and, and Hunter Biden, which, you know, is, is, indefe- is so indefensible they admitted it was indefensible. They've admitted that was a very, very bad call. And I think that was freely chosen. And I, also, I think Facebook outsourced all of their their covid moderation policies essentially to the cdc itself yep. in ways that are very alarming well on twitter you they even refer to them as their co-workers twitter employees who yeah. are going back and forth with the cdc it's ridiculous so right now is big tech still being run by big government yes uh yes it's, it's being I, I think absolutely but is it being run by big government because big government is holding a loaded gun to their head and yeah. saying do this yeah, we're not, we're not saying you have to. We're just saying that, you know, you know, nice company you have there. It'd be a shame if someone regulated it out of existence or broke it up. And by the way, there's an entire, you know, panel of bureaucrats and people who are perfectly willing to do that. Just say the word. Just say you're going to go against us. I think well, their decision making has to be seen in that light. Well, the, the, the irony about Biden is, you know, Facebook is killing people. Um I wouldn't say this, but I mean, the irony of the statement is that to the extent Facebook was, quote unquote, killing people, it was by preventing debate and preventing uh, people from asking legitimate questions and getting answers or even if they were competing answers from equally credentialed experts. That prevention led to people filling in their the own blank, their own blanks and based on their politics of what is judicious and what is not judicious. And maybe they weren't always making the best choices because Joe Biden and his folks at CDC were suppressing debate. Yeah, I mean, does the CDC have anything better to do with its time than, you know, dictate to Facebook what should appear on the platform? There, there was a very, they're very much two online, the whole Biden administration thinking the, the COVID policy hinges on what you're allowed to discuss on Facebook. I mean, we all know that the CDC, you know, screwed up, especially in the early days. So, so many times they screwed up the testing rollout, they prohibited tests that would have worked fine in order to have their own centralized test that then didn't work. Um, I, I feel similarly, frankly, about some of these law enforcement officials that are spend all day apparently flagging obnoxious tweets for yes, right. Twitter moderators. Like, right. don't you don't you have a every time there's a mass shooting, we find out the person was known to, to the FBI already. Maybe follow up on some of those leads instead right. of like play on Twitter all day. Huh? How about that? Yeah, I, right. Sounds good I, to me. But but and 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 again, uh, the, uh, perhaps uh, one of the more infamous examples of this too, to your point about CDC, was this exchange between Collins and Fauci about trying to silence um, doctors and scientists that were associated with the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, uh, you know, the, the epidemiologists from Harvard and Oxford, rather than just um, engage and 
if uh, Jay Bhattacharya or Martin Kaldorf has something you disagree with, then disagree with them publicly, uh, as opposed to trying to use your, your power at CDC to silence them altogether. Yeah, and it's treating these subjects like there, there can be no debate. And, and look, to be clear, uh, Facebook took down content that I think is totally relating to COVID and other things that I think is totally crazy and has no legitimacy. But it, it also cut off debate on, uh, on you know, whether it was possible that COVID emerged from a lab, um, whether the vaccine should be authorized uh, for, for children, um, it, you know, given the the children don't have a particularly uh, statistically bad time with COVID and what are the, the benefits there and, and, and various other topics. And I, I feel like this, and I think many people feel like this, that, that it is healthy to debate and discuss many of these topics on social media and uh, that just, just turning the off switch to all that stuff actually made people uh, more paranoid about, uh, about various COVID topics because when you silence someone, you know, you make them when you say we're so afraid of this, we're so afraid of you finding out about this or learning about this or reading this. That's how seductive and powerful and evil this idea is. I think it makes a lot of people more interested in the idea, frankly. I think yeah. that's the censor's dilemma. What do you think about uh, so now the Department of Justice is going after Google to try to, uh, you know, uh, have them break off their uh, ad uh, piece, the ad piece of their business. Um, is that going to have an additional chilling effect in terms of big tech's willingness to push back against government agencies, then we're going to be the next one facing antitrust suits. Yeah, I, I think, frankly, yes. And, and many conservatives who want to defend free speech, I think, are falling into a bad trap of supporting some of these government actions being taken against the tech companies. Again, the major problem is that government actors, federal bureaucrats, political figures are, are, are threatening these companies into doing things that I think are bad. That, you know, trying to handle it on the company end is, is I think, not a good approach and risks making the problem worse. Like, wait, if we break up Google, how does that, well, then you could have several entities that all have bad speech policies because they're all being yelled at by the federal government. If you raise right. their liability, why, they would take down more stuff. That's the worst solution of all is this changing this Section 230 statute, where, where, which some, many conservatives want to do, but it would make them... It would make it so you could sue Facebook, for instance, if if I post a libelous comment on Facebook. Right now, you can sue me. You can't sue Facebook. That's the way the law works. They want to change that. But, I, I mean, I think the like obvious implication of that would be that Facebook's not going to let me post at will or, or anyone or just verified users. There'd be some kind of vetting process. That seems like a vast silencing would take place under so many of these policies. So I'm, I'm very much against them. Let's, we have to correct it on the government end, not on the tech end. He is Robbie Suave, senior editor at Reason, Reason.com, host of Rising at uh, Hill TV as well. Robbie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. It's that time of the week. Open mic Friday. Mm-hmm. Taking your calls, 312-642-5600, turnkey.proanswer line. Comments, compliments, concerns, criticisms, general crack pottery. We'll take it all. Amy, would you like to offer anything? You know, I'm just 
girding my loins to see what's going to happen today in reference to the video that's going to be out in the Memphis beating. And then also Paul Pelosi, the body camera video is going to be released on that. Hammer time. <laughs> oh, oh it's can't so touch funny. this. Do, 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 do. Um, yeah, because Nancy Pelosi, I don't think she said that she it, she might not be able to watch it. And there right. might be other reasons why she won't be able to watch it. But mm. I know. But we'll just find out the truth because NBC News foiled the information. They foiled the body cam video, the police body cam video and other things. So. Uh, I'll be released today, folks. And then I offer you know. I offer up Aaron Rodgers. I know oh. there's probably some Bears fans and Covidians that don't like him, but he was on his buddy Pat McAfee's podcast again. I think he appears weekly on that show, and um, he talked a little bit about the press coverage since uh, his season ended, all the trade rumors about Aaron Rodgers, and uh, how the sports media covers him. And I thought this was a really good perspective. Uh, you could make the same case for a non-Covidian Paul or person and their treatment from the larger press corps. Take a listen. There's heroes and villains in in sports and entertainment. And I think because of my stance on COVID uh, and maybe some other things, I've been cast as the villain, especially the last few years. And so that is the way that, uh, you know, a lot of things I said are often interpreted. I'm not upset about that. I don't feel like a victim in any way. I don't have that mentality. That's fine. I actually embrace that role a little bit. That's how you want to cast me. But um, I did see there were some comments that, you know, I'm only playing for MVPs and yes. stuff like that. Didn't maybe quite see the entire clip of some of the stuff that I said. I don't care about that stuff. It doesn't offend me. I mean, this culture, this woke culture wants to be offended by everything. You just go online and find something you don't Ooh. agree with. I'm offended. How could you possibly say that? Yes. I don't really care. I don't care who it's coming from or who said it. They're entitled to their opinion. It might not be right. And every now and then you got to get on here and, and say, hey, you know, you just found some bullshit. Like, that's just oh. not true. Like, let's just tone it back a little bit. You might need to do that. Most of the time, you just kind of gloss over it. Who cares? It doesn't really matter. Because it honestly doesn't matter. It doesn't affect my day-to-day. It doesn't interrupt my whale-watching time. It doesn't interrupt me at all during the day. I don't think, you know, <laughs> agonize about, like, oh, you know, oh, Gronk said, you know, I shouldn't be worrying about MVPs. I'm like, I know Gronk. I love Gronk. He's awesome. He's, he's fun energy to be around. Like, but what do they do? You know, if you take us, if you take the right, the right sound bite from the right thing, you know, and it's a, and it's a station that may or may not have in the past been brought to you by Pfizer, then they got to make sure that their villain, oh. you know, gets cast in the correct light. Uh, and whether or not they're, you know, sponsored by Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson, whatever it might be. What? When you go up against some of those powers that be, you put yourself in the, in the crosshairs. You know, they're going to paint you in a certain way. And that's what the media did to me a couple of years ago. That's fine. That's their prerogative. That's what they want to do. But I think I responded, uh, you know, pretty good in those in those times. And uh, I'm glad I went through that. And anything that comes after that, small potatoes, bro. How can you not like Aaron Rodgers? I love him. And people just vilified him and on so many levels because he wouldn't get vaccinated. It's a sad commentary. It's so sick. Sad commentary on our society where... Aaron Rodgers has more political courage, uh, political courage than members of the clergy. Yep. Sad commentary. All right. Take a couple calls here. That is the point of the segment. Bob in Buffalo Grove. You're on Chicago's Morning Answer. 
Uh, good morning, Dan and Amy. Always good talking to you. Uh, earlier this morning, your new segment uh, mentioned the passing of an uh, NBA player, but I don't believe you or uh, Mike Scott mentioned another death. Uh, Dan, aren't you a uh, White Sox fan? I am a White uh, Sox fan. Well, before you were born, there was the uh, 1967 season. Yes. Uh, Gary Peters was on that staff, and he passed away. Uh, he was Peters was part. Yeah, Peters was part of that great, phenomenal pitching staff of uh, Horland and a very young uh, Tommy John. Uh, that team almost yes, took the Tommy pennant. John. Yeah, Tommy John, yeah. sure. Uh, that, to- that team almost took the pennant. They had a phenomenal ERA, but no um, no hitting. And then I Tommy still John remember this. Uh, Tommy John famously known for the Tommy John surgery. Tommy John surgery, yeah. yeah right. and, then, and then Sunday... At the end of the season, the Sox went into Kansas City to play the Royals. It was pretty much um, not a done deal, but they Kansas City was the uh, w- one of the worst teams in baseball. The Sox were going to win a doubleheader. Unfortunately, they uh, lost a doubleheader, and that ended their pennant ch- uh, chance. And Thank you. Gary Peters, yes. have a great day. Thank you, Hawk Harrelson, for that moment in yeah. White Sox history. Appreciate it. All, yeah, Love you, Bill- Bob. Speaking of sports, that's Billy Packer. That oh. was mentioned by Mike Scott. Yeah, Billy Packer. He was a he was a good color analyst. I liked him uh, doing college basketball games. We still have uh, Bill Raftery, but uh, Billy Packer was good too. Okay. Jordan Antioch. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Hey, in light of everything that's going on with this um, the assault weapons ban, and now um, our president calling for a ban, and Chuck Schumer and everybody. Um, I know there's people that listen on the other side of the aisle, maybe people that aren't quite as educated as people that are passionate about it as myself and others. But for those that aren't um, kind of educated or know what's going on with this, I really encourage people to look up um, a couple things in the past, uh, a thing called Operation Wide Receiver and, uh, and another thing called Operation Fast and Furious, where oh, our yeah. ATF, DEA, right, where our Justice Department, our ATF, and our DEA armed uh now they didn't want to take claim for it they used the arizona atf but they armed the cartel with over 600 assault weapons to try to track them coming back through straw purchases now to my knowledge not one has been uh claimed but one agent uh officer brian terry was killed by one of those weapons and there's a good chance that the way things circulate you never know the way the lottery works is you may know somebody that's been shot with one of these weapons now i so i encourage everybody to do a little homework the other thing i encourage them to do is if they're a democrat and they voted for this. I asked them, I encourage them to call their representative and ask them why under two presidents that have complete control over Congress that have Democrat control, they never pass an assault weapons ban. They never pass any kind of gun control. Ask them that when they had the majority, when they could ramrod uh, Obamacare through, they never did one thing about guns. And ask them to give you an honest answer about that. The other thing I ask is that you just, you just educate yourself and you start to look into these things and do a little digger, deeper dive to realize what they're pushing. It's control. It's not safety. It's control, and it's money. And I just I think everybody should make informed decisions and realize what it is that they're pushing that they won't enforce and that they don't really want. So thanks. Thanks. Have a good weekend. Thanks, thanks. Jordan. I <clears throat> uh, got a text uh, message. Yeah. Uh, remember when the city of Chicago would have amnesty days for parking tickets? Well, maybe the Justice Department should have top-secret document amnesty days 
for the next 30 days, you can turn in your classified documents. <laughs> That's uh, right. That's good. That's one way to get them collected. Yeah. Uh, Joe in Arlington Heights, our poet laureate. Good morning. Another awesome week for uh, you two. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, well, this is no fun limerick like my name. It is Lightfoot, which we we did some several months ago. But this one's called How a State Dies. I saw this picture of um, on Fox News on the phone app, a, a, fo- a headshot of Pritzker next to a headshot of DeSantis. And it just something sparked. So I sat down last night and I wrote this. How a State Dies. There was an extra fat man who lorded over Lincoln's land. Dictatorship was his game in his quest for presidential fame. He knew what was best on the woman's rights test, that babies shall die until the day they open their eyes. On gender fantasy, too, for nothing but compliance will do. Yes, the extra fat man bought into queer theory's plan. But care did he not, while states of emergency won't stop, the state's constitution he fought while judges he bought. He pursued his self-righteous plans, trying to disarm every man, and lied at each turn, looking away while Chicago did burn. So this is the tale of a once great state. For Illinois, it's probably too late. We have learned to comply, which is all it takes for a state to die. Wow. That wow. is how a state right, dies. Joe. Yeah, it's um, so, sort of... Uh... Conjures images of Edgar Allan Poe. Thanks for the call, Joe. Very dark. Hardly, but thanks, thanks yeah, for puffing me call. up. Anyway. Thanks for the call. Speaking of Edgar Allan Poe, maybe he's top of mind because uh, have you seen the new movie uh, with Christian Bale and uh, the guy from the Harry Potter movies? I'm blanking on his name now. Who plays Edgar Allan Poe? Pale Blue Eye. It's on Netflix. Is it good? It's good. Very good. Worth well, a Christian watch. Christian Bale's always good. This uh, this guy who's um, who plays Edgar Allan Poe. Who was in the Harry Potter movies? I mean, he was outstanding. Great performance. It's a good movie. That's worth checking out. A little dark, but you know. Have you watched that '90s show? That '90s show? No. It's uh, it's great. I love it. The first episode is brutal because you really you're wondering why you're these new people are in your, you know, your characters' bedrooms and houses and things like that. But what's after the, the first, what's the premise? Oh, it's from that '70s show. It's called that '90s oh. show. It's the same. Kitty Foreman, they're there, and they have new. Their grandchild comes to live with them. Oh, it's, gosh. The, no, it's good. It's the seventy. You, want, you like the seventy show? I love that show. Did you? You still have the the, the poster of Topher Grace in your bedroom? <laughs> <laughs> that show is, that show sucks. But it's oh, it's good. And that ninety yeah. show is really good. You just have to get through the first episode, and then there's surprises and cameos throughout the series. Don't listen to Amy. Listen to me. Watch Pale Blue Eye with Fine. your. But if you want some, time. you know mind-numbing things you can watch that 90s show mike in lakeview good morning everybody um kind of tough following e.e cummings but yeah i right. uh, i uh wanted to say that i'm right now i'm leaning toward Vallis, but i'm slowly uh, becoming a whitey for willie but here's my concern if um either of those two guys gets elected and you know, you've got 10 marxists in the city council probably another five going to get elected in April or next month, whichever you prefer, uh, what kind of cooperation are they going to get? That's comment number one. Comment number two, I think you need to recruit Philip from Blue Island and Tom from uh, Long Grove to uh, have a Wokies for Willie group uh, 
to be started, maybe with some of the liberals of vote for him. Thanks for the call, Mike. The whole city council cooperation, like, oh, how are you going to work with the General Assembly if you're a Republican uh, governor and the Democrats control the General Assembly? I don't know. It's going to be issue by issue. We're going to uh, have to build coalitions around my policy agenda, not theirs. Because what, what is the point of having somebody who can work with the city council if they're a bunch of Marxists? Who cares who the mayor is then? The whole, and if it becomes a uh, if there are fights, finally, the city council has been a rubber stamp for the past 50 years. There should be fights. And if things are brought to a halt, good. For the most part, things being brought to a halt in government in this state is progress. So the whole, you know, you have the comment, this, uh, as Ray Lopez was telling us this morning, the possibility of a sort of a common sense caucus between that would be formed with him and and uh, Spazzato and and Gardner and Napolitano and hopefully some others. You know, uh, you it's all about aligning interests around particular issues. Who cares if the uh, out and proud Marxists of the city council don't want to cooperate with you? By the way, even though you have this city council in practice, Chicago is a strong mayor form of government, isn't it? You can accomplish a lot as mayor, even with a recalcitrant city council. And if it's Beirut by the lake, like it was in the 80s under Harold Washington, then let's fight it out. Either the city's worth fighting for or it isn't. Uh, David in Lansing. Uh, Good morning, Dan and Amy. Um, I was wondering if either of you still have a Facebook account. Yeah, I do. do. I don't don't post very much, but I I have an account, yeah. Okay. Uh, Did you know that if you, you know, you don't necessarily have to give somebody money or a website money. Um, You could just go to the website, and that increases traffic. When you when you increase traffic, that company that owns the website can charge more for advertising. So you're kind of indirectly giving Mark Zuckerberg money. Um, remember when you threw the election, or you helped throw it by spending four hundred million dollars on drop boxes uh, a couple of years ago? I do remember. Well, by going to Facebook, you're helping Mark Zuckerberg throw more elections. Have a nice day. All right, David. Uh, Stay away from Facebook. Well, the whole like you know boycott everything. Yeah, that's not the play. It's just not. It's not a feasible strategy. Sorry. Speaking of Facebook, Rich Indian Head Park. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Just have a quick question: Is there any upside for Trump going back on Facebook after two years? Guys, have a nice weekend. It's going to help uh, Mark Zuckerberg throw elections. Um, um, it's a communication yeah, platform. I mean, but will it, you know, did he sign a contract about his uh, truth social that he can't do any other social media posts? I don't, I don't you know, I don't uh, pretend to know the particulars of that SPAC, but, um, you know, I mean, how effective was he using Twitter? And Twitter puts money into the pockets of, well, now Elon Musk, but previously, and when Trump was ascendant, it was Jack Dorsey and, by extension, the left, as we see from the Twitter files and the spy agencies. So is uh, Trump um, operating against interest? No, not really. He was able to reach a lot of people around the uh, legacy media, wasn't he? Yep. Uh... Eduardo Doing in Chicago. Doing a backbend over there? Yeah, stretching. <laughs> yeah, good morning, uh, Dan and Amy. Um, 
the uh, COVID thing and the flu shot, they're not supposed to be taken at the same time. They had an article in the Daily Mail because it, uh, there's an increase in uh, stroke. And check this book out for the young people, 50 Jobs, 50 States, Daniel Siddiqui. I should have called this in last time. 50 Jobs, 50 States. Yeah. There, and we should check it out because why? What's the thesis? Well, young people <laughs> change jobs uh, after one week, so this would be good for them, and then they can write a book. Okay. Oh, this is what he did. He did 50 jobs in 50 states. Right, got it. right. A personal journey. All right. Thanks, Eduardo. Uh, Chuck and Delavan to close her out. Hey, how you doing? Uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, coming to visit the bottle shop. I, I'm not sitting in the bottle shop. I'm not allowed to drink when my girlfriend's working, Kathleen. But I want to give a shout-out. When I was at your birthday party, uh, I went I met this really nice couple, Phil and Reggie. And I want to give a shout-out to them. They sold their house in Illinois. Now they live up here by Lake Geneva. So don't forget next week, we got the big winter festival up here in Lake Geneva. Come up and freeze your buns off. It's going to be exciting. Thank you, Chuck. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773 467 5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.